Well, if you have Genesis chapter 8 open in front of you, it'll be helpful this evening. Hopefully also you can see a little handout that I've left on the seats. Uh, There should be at least a couple for each household. There's plenty of spares at the front uh, if you want to come and grab one. Uh, But our theme for this evening is a phrase that we don't actually find in Genesis 8, but we did read it earlier in Isaiah 43. And it's a phrase that several preachers and commentators that I was consulting in preparation Uh, They chose to use it to really sum up the theme of Genesis chapter 8. And I think it's a very fitting theme indeed. And so our theme this evening is when you pass through the waters. When you pass through the waters. What often makes a story more engaging is if it's told in a personal way. When, for example, a war breaks out somewhere, as sadly it has done done a couple of months ago in Ukraine. Uh, We tend to hear it described at times in terms of big numbers that quickly don't mean anything to us. X thousands of people killed. X number of days of fighting. X number of refugees displaced. And the numbers, whilst awful, they, they almost go in one ear and out the other because we just can't really grasp it or picture it or appreciate it in our mind's in our mind's eye. But what maybe brings the situation home to us more effectively is if the story is made more personal. When a reporter for a news channel gets speaking to a young mum, the age of some of you ladies here this evening or listening in at home, and she has her little children in her arms, children the same age as some of our children in church uh, here in Dremore. And the children are holding on to the kinds of toys that our children have. And yet these people are describing horrendous experiences that are the worst nightmare of most of us. And suddenly a situation that has international implications becomes very personal and intimate indeed. Well the flood as we were thinking this morning was a unique, miraculous, spectacular yet dreadful event. Used by God to judge the wickedness of human sin across the whole world at that time. And yet in describing that worldwide event, uh, the book of Genesis makes it intensely personal, particularly here in chapter 8. Genesis doesn't go into the details of exactly what chemical or biological or geological processes caused the flood, as fascinating as that would be for for some of you to study. Instead, here in chapter 8, it really tells us about God and Noah. The man whom God rescued from the flood and the relationship and the interactions between them. And in focusing on the relationship between God and Noah, we learn here, of course, about God's relationship with each of us. There are warnings here for us, as well as great encouragements from the way that God was, from the way that God brought Noah through the waters and ultimately delivered him through the waters. So I want to think, as we we think about this interaction between God and Noah this evening, let's think first of all about the fact that God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And we've thought about these words briefly this morning. uh, But Genesis 7, as we considered also this morning, the waters prevailed. We read that five times. The waters prevailed. God's triumph of judgment over the world. The waters rise and rise And everything in the earth dies and dies. 
And then comes Genesis chapter 8 verse 1. But God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. And this is the, the hinge point of the text. This is the moment in the, in the story of the flood where everything changes. It's, it's the halfway point. If you take the story of the flood as really being from Genesis 6 to the end of Genesis 9. We're right in the heart of it here at Genesis 8 verse 1. And it is the hinge point of the story. And I don't usually get into too much detail about the, the structure of Hebrew language. The language That's the language in which the Old Testament was originally written. But we have to make a bit of an exception this evening because of uh, how stark and how eye-catching it is in the original language. And, and that's why I've given you that little handout so that you can see a little bit of this for yourself this evening. So it's worth bearing in mind, of course, that many of the first people who received Genesis, they, they heard it. They didn't have it. Uh, to read in their hands necessarily. And so there are various elements used in the Hebrew language to help people remember the story, the the teaching that they receive from God's word. Uh, And what we have here, uh, if you look at the handout, uh, this is quite typical of of Hebrew language, that everything builds to a midpoint, uh, and then everything after that midpoint sort of parallels or, or is a mirror image of what came before. And so if you see the bullet points there, uh, you have in chapter 6 verse 10 mention of Noah's sons. You'll have mention of Noah's sons again in chapter 9 verses 18 to 27 and and what they did. Chapter 7 verse 1, you have the command to enter the ark. That's paralleled in chapter 8 verse 16 with a command to leave the ark. Chapter 7 verse 4 mentions a period of seven days as does chapter 7 verse 10. And you have two periods of seven days again. In chapter 8 verses 10 and 12. And so you have all these parallels throughout the text. But look at the the hinge. Look at the centre and heart of the whole passage. It's chapter 8 verse 1. God remembered Noah. The story is told friends in such a way as to show us that at at the heart of it. Is God's relationship with his servant. With the one that he saved. We've said it several times the last few weeks. When we read that God remembers. It does not mean that God had ever forgotten. Uh, the, way we, uh, the way perhaps a husband will come home and uh, triumphantly say. I remembered to buy bread and milk. Means I almost forgot. <laughs> uh, but that, that's not the case here with God. The word remember here is a covenant word. It means that God acts according to the promises that he had made. In this case, the promises that he had made to Noah. It's not forgetfulness. It's action. It's acting upon promise. And so how encouraging, friends, how deeply reassuring that right of the heart of this story that impacts and affects the whole world. Right at the heart of it is, God, is God's relationship with one man, one ordinary man and his family. The, the action that God took to save him, to protect him, to keep his promises to him. Noah would survive and live and thrive because of God remembering his steadfast covenant love. Noah had to endure immense testing and trial. We'll think more about that in a moment. 
But all through those times of trial, friends, Noah was remembered by the almighty, sovereign, all-wise, gracious God. Christian, do you realise this evening that you are remembered by him too? You are remembered by this great God as well. Do you realise at the very centre of all that is going on in this world today, amid the, the rising waters of war and economic strife and the seeming breakdown of our societies in the West, the uncertainties that the future holds, in the midst of all of that is God's gracious, loving remembrance of you and your family and our church. An election took place last week. Another election will take place this week. But in many ways, the election that took place in this building last week is of infinitely more importance and will have infinitely more of an impact than the election that's planned for Thursday in Northern Ireland. Why? Because the election that took place here concerns the Church of Jesus Christ. And the Church of Jesus Christ is what God is remembering and blessing and using to bring blessing into this whole world. And what defines you if you're a Christian here this evening is not your limited faith, your past failures, your lack of understanding of God's word or the the difficulties that you face in life. What defines you is the fact that you are known and remembered and loved by God your Father who has provided your salvation through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you pass through the waters, God says to you this evening, I will be with you. I will remember you. And the very fact that we're gathered here this evening is evidence of God's remembering us. Or if you tune in at home as well, you're sat here in a place of worship, not lying on your sofa or treating this day as just another day to do what you like because God has remembered you. You believe the word of God despite all the constant attacks and criticisms and belittling of God's word by the world you believe it not because you're smarter or better than anyone else but because God has remembered you you will be in heaven one day reunited with believing loved ones already there able to enjoy a new world of new blessings because God has remembered you God remembered Noah and he remembers you and me As we gather in here this evening. As we gather in perhaps feeling under pressure. Perhaps discouraged. Perhaps tempted. He knows you by name. He has chosen you from before the foundations of the world. He remembers you. In your trials and in your difficulties this evening. can be a bit awkward at ministers' conferences or even in other walks of life as well. Uh, when you see fellow pastors that you've met before and talked to before, maybe at past conferences, and, and you remember the face, but you don't really remember the name. Maybe one of you remembers the other's name and the other one doesn't. It makes it even more awkward. And you're thinking, well, that person remembered something about me, but, but not everything. We know each other a bit, but maybe not quite as well as we should or as well as we'd like. 
Friends, it's not that God remembers bits and pieces about us. It's not that he remembers the face but not the name. He knows everything about us. And he cares for us. Far better than being remembered by the CEO of your company or by a colleague. Far better than being known or remembered by a favourite celebrity or grabbing a selfie with them. Far better is to be known and remembered by the God who made this world, who will judge this world, but is willing to extend mercy and grace to this world. God remembered Noah. Secondly, as we think about the relationship between God and Noah here, we see that Noah waited on God. Noah waited on God. God remembered Noah, but Noah had to wait for what must have felt like a very long time. If you look at your outline again, you see that there's this great reversal process described for us. And again, that's brought out in the, in the way that the, the text is, is, is designed and, and organized. This great reversal process is described really from Genesis 8 verse 1 onwards. A process that takes a very long time. Look at chapter 8 verse 2. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. You see there how that's the complete reversal of what we thought about this morning. Mentioned this morning that the flood wasn't just a case of rain falling from the sky. It was also a case of water surging up from below the earth's surface. uh, All those millions of gallons. Uh, And now that process is put into reverse. The sky is closed up again. That tear in the atmosphere perhaps. uh, And the the surface of the earth. No longer is there water surging through it. Having risen and risen, the water now begins to recede and recede, but it takes months and months. And you'll notice throughout this chapter, Moses keeps giving us these time references, uh, which emphasize to us how long this took. Look at verse 3. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. That's how long it took for them to stop rising in the first place, including the 40 days of the floodwaters falling. Look at verse 4. In the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. That's thought to be a mountain range in modern day Syria and Turkey. Verse 5 says, in the, in the tenth month, the tops of the mountains were seen. Forty days after that, Noah begins sending out the birds, the raven first and then a dove, sent out three times. One week after another. And finally, a full year after going into the ark, verse 13 says that Noah looked out of the ark and saw dry ground. A full year. Now, why does Moses give us all these different dates and times? Well, for one thing, again, it emphasizes to us, doesn't it, that this is something that really happened. And Moses uses Noah's age, Noah's life as his time reference. The way that we would just use the the year, the, the calendar year as our time reference. But more than that, surely friends, Moses is teaching us a very important lesson about our experience as believers. Which is that sometimes we just have to wait. Sometimes we just have to wait. 
God remembered Noah. God was not going to leave him to die in the flood or in the ark. And yet, Noah had to wait. He had to wait for months and months and months in the ark, in the dark. And again, the giraffes were not happily poking their long necks out through the windows. The lions were not sunbathing on the deck. The ark was a dark, smelly, floating box. Can we even imagine what Noah and his family had to put up with? How they had to live for that year of their lives, locked up in the ark. Three or four months of lockdown in our comfortable homes with Tesco delivering to our doorsteps. That was bad enough for some of us. Can we even imagine life in lockdown on the ark? Do you think Mr. and Mrs. Noah or Mr. and Mrs. Shem didn't have a few moments of getting anxious or irritated with one another, sick of it? Do you not think Mrs. Shem or Mrs. Ham didn't wonder to themselves sometimes, what have I married into here? Noah had to wait and wait and wait. And yes, Noah had faith to believe that God would bring them through, but it took an awfully long time. One writer says, when troubles come, they often advance quickly, but retreat slowly. That's what the floodwaters had done, wasn't it? They advanced quickly. They retreated dreadfully slowly. And I wonder, can you testify to that experience this evening? Perhaps even right now at this juncture in your life, trouble has arrived in your life suddenly, quickly. One day everything was fine. The next day everything was a mess. But as quickly as the trouble has arrived, it's certainly taking its time to go away. We can injure our bodies in a split second and then they take months or years to heal. A group of God's people are led and eager even to plant a new church. Core members move from their previous church. They change their lives to be part of this kingdom work. But it's hard, it's testing and maybe it's years until they see fruit. Maybe a few words are rashly spoken in anger or frustration. We're immediately sorry for them, but they leave a relationship ruined for years to come. Maybe a bad decision from one of our children leaves us burdened, worried for them for a long time. And in all those trials and many others like them, friends, we have to wait. And just like Joseph and King David and Daniel at various points in their lives, Noah here has to wait with patience and trust in his God. He had to deal with what one preacher calls the challenge of God's hiddenness. That although God knows us and remembers us and does care for us, from our limited, finite view, he sometimes seems distant from us. Are you having to wait today? Have the waters been rising around you for such a terribly long time? Do you feel forgotten in the midst of it? You're not forgotten. You're remembered by your God. He loves you. 
He has good purposes for you. We read from James chapter 1 earlier, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Perhaps God is testing us in our trials. Maybe he is using your circumstances to strengthen your faith, to refine that faith, to cut out some of the dross or distraction. Maybe drawing out your faith in him as he has never quite done before. Sooner or later, friends, we believe the waters will recede, dry land will appear, and he will bring you through. So God remembered Noah. Noah waited on God. And then thirdly, notice that God commanded Noah. God commanded Noah. Just notice verse 13. In the 601st year, that's the six, again, the 601st year of Noah's life. In the first month, on the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. A full year after Noah went into the ark. It goes on. Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked. And behold, the face of the ground was dry. Then look at verse 14. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark. Notice, friends, that just because the ground was dry, or appeared fairly dry to Noah, did not mean that Noah left the ark. In fact, it was another month and a half or so before Noah leaves the ark. And he only left the ark when God commanded him to do it. What incredible patience and obedience Noah shows. As far as he was concerned, it was very simple. God told him when to go into the ark. And God would tell him when to go out of the ark. And again, if you just notice the parallel in the the outline that I've given you, the story is structured to emphasize this. Chapter 7, verse 1, go into the ark, you and all your household. And now chapter 8, verse 16, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your son's wives with you. At God's command, friends, we have a new beginning for the whole planet and for Noah's family, for the animals. And again, that's emphasized to us as we consider briefly this morning by the echoes we have in chapter 8, the echoes of Genesis chapter 1 that we have in Genesis chapter 8. Notice, for example, chapter 8 verse 1 says that God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Well, Genesis 1 verse 2 says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters at the very beginning. And the word for wind and spirit is the same word in Hebrew. So here perhaps is a hint that just as God began to create the world at the beginning with, uh, with that wind, the spirit hovering over the waters, so now he's going to recreate the world. Just as the waters in Genesis 1 receded and the dry land appeared on day 3 of creation, so now the water recedes in Noah's world. The tops of the mountains are seen and then the dove brings the olive leaf and then again, eventually Noah sees dry ground. Just as God told Adam and Eve and all the animals, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1 verse 28. So now God says to Noah and his wife and to the creatures, be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 8 verse 17. And so we have here, friends, a new beginning, a fresh start, 
at God's command. And Noah believed by faith all through the flood that this was God's plan. And that's why Noah didn't move until God commanded him. Right up to the last moment, Noah showed humility and obedience to the plan of God. Think of the excuses that Noah could have made as soon as he first saw any hint of dry land. You don't think they would have been desperate to get out of that ark. We've been here long enough. This ark stinks. My wife is nagging at me to get a move on. Surely God doesn't need us to be here any longer than we need to be. But no. He waited for the command of God. Friends, our trials must not become excuses for presuming or ignoring or disobeying the commands of God. Sometimes those who have God's word, who know God's word, nonetheless ignore that word. They're impatient. They they try to get around it. They try to live life according to their own time scale and agenda. Some who struggle with the temptation of same-sex attraction or who want to make excuses or to include those who want to live that lifestyle openly in the church, they say, well, surely God made me this way. Surely he doesn't want me to be miserable. This is who I am. Shouldn't I embrace it? Doesn't God accept anyone and everyone? I was born this way. And God's word says to such people, behold, I was born in sin. Our sin has made all of us imperfect. All of us have desires that shouldn't be there. Inclinations, temptations that are not what God intends for us. And so to those who say I was born this way. The command of God is you must be born again. And that's as true for the person with a bad temper. The person with an orientation towards dishonesty. An orientation towards greed. If that's the way you are. If that's the way you've been born, you need to be born again. You need to put sin to death. You need to be obedient to the commands of God. Maybe exams are looming in school. Or an employer is pushing for more hours to be devoted to work. Even at the expense of observing the Lord's day. Or spending time with your family or serving in the church. And excuses could be made. But don't I need to provide Isn't this business just for a short time and and then later I can give to my family, to my church, to other things? God's God's word says, those who honour me, I will honour. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. In regard to our finances, we submit to the command of God. When we are slandered, when lies are told about us and the temptation is to strike back and to hurt We submit to the command of God and we trust that he sees and knows the right from the wrong. Noah had to submit to the plans of God, friends, the word of God and the timing of God. And we don't always understand the plans and the timing of God. But those are opportunities to exercise the faith that the psalmist described. Psalm 130 verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. So God remembered Noah. Noah waited on God. God commanded Noah. 
And fourthly and finally this evening, Noah called on God. Noah called on God. Noah leaves the ark at God's command, verse 18. And what's the first thing that he does? Puts his feet up and takes in the view in this new recreated earth. No, look at verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. As soon as God has brought Noah through the waters, friends, Noah worships. Noah calls on God. Reverend Donnelly, preaching in this text, points out the first act in the new world was worship. First act in the new world was worship. Noah did as he had been taught by his father and by the godly sons of Seth that we thought about in Genesis 5. Noah offered sacrifices and called upon the name of the Lord. Verse 20 says he offered some of every clean animal and every clean bird. As I mentioned this morning, that's why extra animals uh, and birds were taken on the ark because sacrifices had to be offered and the animals also had to be able to uh, reproduce and multiply. Verse 21 says, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, that's a way of saying God accepted the worship of Noah. Look at God's response to Noah's sacrificial worship. Verse 21. I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. No matter what some of the more radical climate change activists might tell you. Notice God doesn't say here that the problem of sin is now solved. Still there, as we'll see later in the story, sadly, Noah and his sons will show us very clearly that sin is still in the heart of mankind. But God here is is approving and accepting of a substitute sacrifice of worship offered by Noah. And he is merciful. And he says the earth is never again going to go through the kind of devastating cataclysmic event of the flood ever again. If God was going to punish man's sin to the fullest extent, as several writers and preachers pointed out, there would have to be a flood every week. He's merciful. The worship of Noah is pleasing to God. God commits to showing further mercy and grace to this new world. But notice, friends, that even as God didn't forget Noah as he passed through the waters... Noah didn't forget God when the waters were behind him. He offered up right and acceptable and thankful worship to him. Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. Noah's worship pleased God because it recognised the need for sacrifice, the need for God's anger and wrath to be diverted. We have no more sacrifices of flesh and blood to make because the Lord Jesus Christ has offered up his flesh and blood as the full and final sacrifice. Our greater ark, our place of safety and refuge as we pass through the waters, the one upon whom the wrath of God is satisfied. Noah's name means rest. 
Jesus Christ is our greater rest. Jesus has had the flood of God's judgment fall upon him at Calvary. Jesus waited patiently and eventually he was vindicated and he was brought up from the pit out of the tomb just as Noah was brought out of the ark. Jesus lives and he offers life to all who trust in him. And for that reason, friends, as Christians, we always, as we thought at the beginning in Psalm 9, we always have reason to rejoice. We always have reason to be thankful, even as we pass through the waters, knowing all that God has done for us in Christ should fuel our worship, should prompt us to call upon the name of the Lord, whether we are in the waters or whether we have been brought through the waters. It's one of the reasons we come together week by week in the Lord's day. We're not bringing anything to God that he needs. We're not adding anything to God that he lacks by our worship. We are reminding ourselves. We are filling our own minds and hearts with the goodness and grace and covenant love and remembrance of God. Is your life marked day by day, friends, with thankful worship? Is our contentment in Christ obvious to those around us even as we pass through the waters? Mentioned at one of our recent seniors' uh, lunch groups, I mentioned a minister who's fond of answering the question, how are you doing? He's fond of answering the question by saying, better than I deserve. It's not a bad conversation starter. Someone asks you, how are you doing? Better than I deserve. Despite whatever waters we may be passing through, friends, we're all doing better than we deserve. God has been immensely good and gracious to us. And if we're children of God by faith in Christ, he has remembered us and we are blessed and we are headed towards a glorious new world. A far better world than Noah emerged out into. A world free of sin. And so perhaps in a culture that is quick to complain, quick to forget all the good things that God has done for us. Friends, may we remember the goodness of God toward us. He has remembered us. May we wait upon him patiently. And may we call upon him with thankful and heartfelt worship, even as he brings us through the waters. Amen.